millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skyline's The City Metric Podcast. As I speak, both Britain's major political parties are falling apart. Brexit is under 40 days away. It's still very unclear what future relationship Britain will have with the European Union, whether we'll indeed be able to continue trading internationally, whether the economy is going to follow politics off a cliff. It's all its all incredibly exciting and also terrifying. So we're not going to talk about any of that because, because I'm tired. We are instead going to look to the future. We're assuming there will probably still be a future at some point. And we're going to talk about the future of our cities in, in two different ways that are frankly not that related, but uh, they both have the word high in them. So so I'm going to pretend that's that's a theme rather than just a useful sort of pun style thing. First off, I'm going to speak to a researcher from Nesta, the innovation charity, who's been looking at, uh, at drones. You know, those sort of flyy, buzzy things that occasionally close airports or might one day deliver packages for Amazon, those kind of things. Talking about how those are going to change our cities and whether this is something that the local governments need to be more involved in. The Nest report that that conversation it comes off the back of was called Flying High. So from Flying High to the High Street, you see what I've done there. In the other half, I'm going to talk to Paul Swinney from the Centre for Cities, who you'll, you'll know pretty well by now. They had a policy. Nice northern lad. And we're going to talk about the future of the High Street and what can be done to revive uh, struggling retail centres in an age where, you know, people don't necessarily pop down the shops in the numbers they once did. So, so I'm not going to lie. It's, you know, these two halves don't really la- relate to each other that well, but they're both, they're both very interesting and it gave me a good chance to use a nice pun in, in the episode title. So without further ado, let's get on that. Okay, if I could just start by asking you just to, to introduce yourself, tell us who you are and why you're here. Sure, my name is Kathy Nastine, and I lead on Future Cities in the Challenge Press Centre at Nesta. Nesta being the, uh, you describe yourselves as an innovation charity, is that right? That's right, yeah, we're the UK's innovation charity. We work globally, though. We work on solving some of the world's most pressing problems with a real emphasis on achieving social impact. And you are here today to talk about your research on drones. Yes, that's right. We've been running a program called Flying High. We're about partway through the process now. We began working on this program called Flying High to look at the opportunities of drones in cities. We observed that 
drones were moving out of the military and hobbyist sphere into more compelling commercial applications, that there has been quite a bit of expansion of their use, especially in you know rural areas, agricultural areas, or offshore drilling platforms. But we're seeing increasing evidence that drones can perform really useful functions in cities, that there's a huge market opportunity for this, that drones can do things that are too dangerous for humans to do, it can do tasks more quickly and more flexibly. And we've seen the likes of, of a lot, number of large kind of tech companies and others within the aviation sector experimenting with the use of drones to, to perform different services. But what we realized was that a lot of these applications or trials were more tech-driven than demand pull, and that we thought that if, if drones were to start operating at a larger scale in urban environments, we wondered you know, what it would mean for our cities in the same way that the automobile came around, you know, over 100 years ago, completely reshaped our cities. We started thinking about, you know, if drones were to start operating and performing all these different services, you know, inspecting bridges or delivering parcels or even transporting people, what would that mean for city transport systems? What would that mean for our built environment? What would that mean for, you know, the human experience living in cities? Okay, so there's quite a lot there I want to I ask questions about, but I'm going to start with my, my stupidest question which is, what's a drone? Because uh, I, te- you, I hear the word, they tend to sort of think of like, you know, tiny helicopter type things. But you also mentioned potentially one day one of the applications could be literally moving people, which is, you know, that suggests like, you know, an actual helicopter type thing. So, you know, is there a dif- definition you can offer of exactly what counts as a drone? Yeah, it is. It is a very broad term, you're right. And so drones or unmanned aerial vehicles broadly means flying machines, perhaps flying robots sometimes is what they're called, that are piloted remotely. So there's not a person on board piloting it, but they're flying in the air, perhaps, you know, sometimes to some degree of automation. And some of that's happening now, and some of that may be more in the future. But essentially, it's a machine flying around. Could be really, really small, as you say, but it could also be, you know, quite, quite large and quite significant. And there are prototypes being developed that are large enough to carry people. So those range in kind of the the terms of what they're used. But essentially, a a people-carrying drone would be ones that are like an air taxi but don't have a pilot on board. Okay, so what are the specific challenges that that would affect the use of drones in cities that do not necessarily apply in, in rural areas? So this is what we investigated in the first phase of Flying High. We spent about eight months working with cities in the UK. We put out a, a call and application, received interest from about a third of cities in the UK, and ended up working with five of them, which were London, Southampton, Preston, Bradford, and then the whole West Midlands region, the West Midlands Combined Authority. And that's exactly what we wanted to investigate, is what are the different implications for drones in cities? How could they bring different opportunities, but what would be the real challenges? And working with each of those cities and working with the local task forces and local stakeholders, we went through kind of a series of exercises and workshops to, to unpack all of this. Some of the concerns that we heard were certainly around noise, around visual pollution, around privacy and safety and security. What we heard, a pretty common theme was that people would want to know if they saw a drone flying over their heads or flying over their back garden. They'd want to know who was operating it, if it had a camera on board, was it taking pictures, what what was happening with the data that it maybe was capturing, how was that being used. Basically that people would want to have some kind of assurance that it was a, a an approved use and that a trusted institution was using this and that it was being used for some kind of a a useful purpose. How can we offer that kind of assurance? I mean, if, if the events 
drones were obviously in the news recently with the, the closure of, of Datwick over the Christmas period. If there was any lesson from that, it's it's quite difficult to track down who is piloting a drone. So how can yeah. we, you know, track these things enough to to actually sort of make sure that people do trust that they're not like malicious forces, like you know, taking dodgy pictures for upstairs windows or whatever it may be. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think those are really valid concerns. I think the events at Gatwick and Heathrow make people realise. I think people were quite shocked to see actually that that it wasn't an easy solution to, to kind of stop this from happening, which isn't really always the case. I mean, there are technological barriers and there are things that are in place already in other countries and other airports. But putting that aside, I think some of what we heard from the cities was prioritizing the different types of uses, types of activities that drones could be permitted to do. There's a general general kind of sense, I think, among a lot of local governments that recreational uses, especially in a big city like London, perhaps really aren't appropriate or aren't, aren't really the, the highest and best use for drones. There was a much greater emphasis among the cities we worked with on the publicly beneficial uses of drones. So using drones to do things like transport medical supplies or urgent medical needs for the NHS, using drones to respond to fire or support the police in responding to emergency incidents, like being a first responder on the scene, using drones to support, say, network rail or TFL with track inspections and maintenance. Generally, the cities were all much more interested in those kind of publicly beneficial uses and working with trusted institutions like the NHS or the police to use drones in ways that would bring about public benefit and limiting their use for things like recreational uses or even kind of more commercial applications. So how do you how do you do that? Is it literally a matter of, you know, in the same way you can't completely get rid of drugs, for example, yeah. but you just make sure there is this high enough penalty out there mm. that some people are going to think twice. Is it literally that kind of enforcement? It's a combination of things, I think. I, there are regulatory and policy decisions that need to be made, and there's also technological things that can be done around counter-drone technology or systems. There's something called a, a UTM system, which is, stands for an unmanned traffic management system. That's kind of a system to manage how UAVs, how drones operate, and to, to jam or to block those that are being used for various purposes. But going back to more the, the policy and the regulatory decisions that can be made, one of the most interesting findings that we had from Phase 1 in working with the Civil Aviation Authority, the CAA, who governs aviation and, air, and airspace, we learned that this issue of low-altitude urban airspace in cities where drones would operate you know, at a much lower altitude than, than airliners, so we're talking about 400 feet and below in a city, that not only should that be kind of the purview of the CAA, a tra- traditional aviation regulatory um, decisions, but also at the local level, a local authority local transport authority like TFL or Transport for West Midlands would have an interest and a stake in making some of those decisions about what could be allowed in your city. So it could end up being that, not saying any city in particular, but that you know one city could decide to limit drones only to, to work with emergency services. Another city could decide that something like delivering parcels for Amazon is permitted. Right now, the airspace regulations wouldn't permit that. But there's this growing kind of conversation about how do the airspace regulations and how does it, uh, aviation legislation evolve to, to kind of adapt to this new technology. Mm-hmm. Obviously, kind of one of the consistent themes in, in any policymaking in cities is basically coming up with rules that enable a lot of people to share limited space. Is that still a factor when we're talking about taking to the air? I mean, particularly when you get into stuff like in you know, a parcel delivery or like, you know, even transport. 
at that point, you kind of want sort of like air traffic corridors like planes have, right? So there's no chance that they're going to bang into each other. Is that... Is that part of the conversation we're going to be having? Yeah, yeah, that is a really good point, um, because one of our motivations behind this is not wanting to replicate some of the perhaps less beneficial outcomes we've seen from automobiles and cities and kind of the traffic congestion and things like that that can come from that. But then also looking at kind of the rules of the road and how decisions like that are made and how governance is, is instituted and what that would mean in a, in a 3D system. Um, sometimes this field is, is called urban air mobility, so it's basically taking transport issues and looking at it in the third dimension. So there are lots of conversations happening around that, around prioritizing different types of uses, around setting kind of corridors or channels that certain types of drones would only be permitted in. It could very well be that, that cities, people in cities, might decide that they don't want to see drones allowed to operate in residential areas or maybe after a certain time of night. And there are ways to do that, like I was saying, not just through kind of policy, but also through um, the technological systems like a UTM system where you have to go in and log your flight and put in what your flight path will be, that a UTM system can be the governing entity, I suppose, for lack of a better term, around prioritizing and managing how all these different systems would interoperate. We've we've talked a bit about regulation, but let's move on to the kind of the the more, the positive stuff. You know, what what benefits would would drones actually provide to to urban residents? You've worked with a number of cities looking at specific use cases. What kind of uses are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah, that that was really interesting, the work that we did in that. So we ended up working with each city to choose one particular use case and to dive into that quite deeply to see what the technological barriers might be, but then also what the estimated social and economic impacts of that use case could be. So we went pretty specific. What we looked at in London was transporting samples for between guys in St. Thomas hospitals for post-kidney transplant patients. And in Southampton, we also looked at a medical use case, and that was about flying longer distance to use drones to transport blood from Southampton General Hospital to Isle of Wight, which there's no at-grade crossing. There's only a ferry or hovercraft is is the only way to get to the Isle of Wight, which can be quite expensive and can be quite unreliable. So that offers a a really good opportunity for how a drone could do something much more quickly, much more urgently if blood were needed. So medical transport has quite a bit of of interest. There are other countries too that that are trying out medical transport. In Switzerland, they've been using drones to fly between hospitals to transport medical samples. And then in developing countries, they've been using drones to transport vaccines. So there's there's a lot in there and there's a lot of good potential in there and that that certainly brings out some good public benefit. Another category of use case that we looked at in the first phase was acting as first responders, drones acting as first responders. We worked with the West Yorkshire Fire and Rescue Service in Bradford who are trying out drones for, for various purposes and looked at the benefits of using a drone to be the first responder on a scene when there's a fire reported. Very often, we learn through this, a call into the fire brigade, and there's not even an actual fire, but they, they do need to send out you know the equipment anyway just to be sure, which can can be a big waste of resources and that can divert resources from a place where maybe there actually is a fire. So using a drone to fly out to the scene to see if there's a fire, to see how severe it is, to see if ambulance need to be sent, to see if there are people trapped inside, capture all that kind of information first on the ground, can offer real cost savings to the fire brigade and to the emergency services, potentially save lives and bring all the kinds of benefits that you would imagine with that, which is getting that information more quickly and being able to deploy resources more rapidly. So you've done phase one of this research. Where are you going next? 
Yeah, so we're at an exciting time right now because we're just kicking off the second phase, which we're looking at as our design phase, where we're looking more broadly at all the different types of use cases out there from a service design perspective and evaluating in, in the categories of medical transport, emergency response, and infrastructure, what are all of the requirements that are needed from a city standpoint, from a regulator standpoint, and from a potential customer and end user standpoint, so, so like the NHS or the police or the fire services, to ensure that there is a solid business case supporting how a service like this could be created and, and up and running in cities in a way that meets the city's needs. So we're designing that and we're also designing the testing environments and capabilities that would be needed to actually incubate these products to accelerate the development of services that could provide useful drone functions in cities. So this work is going on now through the spring here of 2019 and then we anticipate later in 2019 being able to launch the actual challenge phase of this project which would be launching a public competition outcome-based funding opportunity for innovators, for technology and for industry to partner with potential customers and end users and cities to come forward with a viable product and to test it out in the testing environments that we're going to develop through a stage gate process, awarding cash along the way and engaging the public in the development of these products. I'm going to end with a slightly awkward question, but like, you know, with with, with the downsides we talked about at the beginning of the segment, you know, relating to privacy or, you know, random people closing airports for a giggle, is it worth it? Are the benefits of this new technology enough to justify the the problems and the disruption it will inevitably bring? Yeah, that's a really good question. That That's a valid question. We think it's a bit more nuanced than kind of a yes-no kind of outright ban. We think that, most importantly, you know, we want to empower cities and empower the complex set of stakeholders involved in the, the potential development of this new sector to have a say, and most importantly, the public to have a say in what they want to see happen. So given that Nesta, we're a charity, we don't have a commercial stake in pushing drones, not at all, but we are interested in empowering cities to shape an emerging technology in a way that's, that's beneficial. So we suspect that the answer probably lies somewhere in creating the opportunities to enable publicly beneficial uses of drones in ways that can save money, save time, even save lives perhaps in in the emergency situations and things like that. But if the public isn't on board with that, then it's not something that should be kind of pushed by technology or, pu- or pushed by the industry, that it needs to be something that, that everyone is kind of is bought in and sees the benefits and it's part of something that they want to see as their cities grow and change over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. So in a word, maybe. <laughs> it's more complex than yes, no, as I think we learned from Brexit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So here I am at the Centre for Cities once again to chat to Head of Policy Paul Swinney about some of the uh, some of the crunchier, more economic issues faced by Britain's cities. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. So you guys are currently doing a lot of thinking about high streets or for, for any non-bridge listeners, the retail hubs of, of cities, right? Is there any point thinking about trying to save the high street? The high street's stuffed, isn't it? Thanks to like Amazon and online retail and out-of-town business parks. Like, why bother? Well, that's certainly the the story you get if you if you listen to anybody in this field. You know, the high street is dead, and oh my god, it's terrible. And I'm sure there, there are certain newspaper outlets that like to run these sorts of stories on a, on a near weekly basis. But the reality is, is that if you look across the country, actually, the high street isn't dead everywhere. In some places, it's doing pretty well. I mean, if you go and I know you've done this many times, John, you know, wander the downtown streets of Manchester or or Leeds or Brighton or especially London, you can see that actually the, the high street is, is thriving. And it really sort of goes against this narrative. So, yes, we've had a huge increase in, in online shopping in recent years, and yet... These places are doing pretty well, so it feels that like actually there's something else going on there. And the discussions of, of the bet noirs of, of online retail and business rates as well, that's another thing. You know, the high street's dead because of business rates. You know, it's, it's a little bit wide of the mark, and there's, there's something else going on here which we've been digging into to find out. So is there something else that's going on here? Um, drinking. <laughs> is it that like a lot of these places are, are doing all right because they've got lots of bars and restaurants basically is that a factor here so there's definitely been i think a shift in some of our more successful places that there's been a, a reduction in in retail use on high streets and there's been a shift more towards experiential type things so bars restaurants and those and and that sort of thing but i think there's an underlying element here to try and understand well what's going on you know how can these types of outlets be supported in some places and not be supported in others and the reason or the main reason for this is because of the strength of the city center economy so an entrepreneur needs footfall to walk past his or her door if they're going to flog something to, to people so if you're in a, a city center like let's say Sunderland or, or Wakefield and there aren't any jobs there or very few jobs there let's not be be too sort of black and white but there are very few jobs there particularly office-based jobs that means you haven't really got a, a large number of people coming in Monday to Friday, you know, five days a week. That means you haven't got people going out at lunchtime. You haven't got people going out of work. You haven't actually got people perhaps even going out and scouting in the afternoon. And effectively, there's just no market to sell to. And so lo and behold, you know, the high street, be that retail or coffee shops or, or restaurants, you know, struggle as a result of that. If we instead say look at places like Bristol or, or Leeds, you've got the reverse. You've got many tens of thousands of people coming in every day to work. They've got money in their pockets. They're walking past these outlets and then lo and behold, they go in and, and, and spend money in there. Online shopping may mean that you haven't got perhaps quite as many retailers in the past, but that has then been replaced 
buy, say, bars and restaurants and things, because the common factor here is that there were still people walking past with money in their pockets. And there are clever people out there who say, I know how I'm going to extract that money from your pocket by providing this service. And then you see the high street remains vibrant. So I think the key issue here is, you know, when we're thinking about this, about the high street, is to only focus on retail or only focus on the high street is far too narrow. You know, when you think about jobs, when you think about the city centre economy, if we get that bit right, then you know, the retail stuff or the high street stuff will just look after itself because, you know, private sector entrepreneurs will go, there's people there with, with pounds in their pockets or plastic in their pockets nowadays, and we're going to get them to get that out of their pockets and give a portion of that to us. Okay, so I have a couple of questions about this. One is, like often talking to people who work in councils up and down the country, one of the things they want to do to revive the high streets is to get more people living in their city centres. Whether that's, you know, it's often about building like places for very young, for young people, young professionals and students, some, but just like making sure they're kind of more 24-hour places because there are people who live there. Is that, is that going to help? In theory, yes. In practice, you're going to see the same geography of that in terms of the geography we see in terms of the high street. So, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves on this front is why would somebody want to live in a city centre? And I think that's the basic question that councils perhaps, or many councils perhaps don't ask themselves when they say, oh, housing is the answer. So they're exactly right. You know, if you get more people living in a city centre, that is another way to boost footfall. And your city centre should be places of, of work, living and, and places to play as well, and places to learn. And so you've got sort of those four elements to think about. But if you say, think about a place like Manchester City Centre, where there's been a huge boom in, in people living in there, you know, I think it might have gone up by about 40,000 in the last 20 years, incredible turnaround. The question again is, well, why is that? Well, that's because Manchester City Centre has seen a turnaround in its economy. There are now many more high paid jobs there. That is meant that people have come in, that's raised demand for amenities, that means there are more bars and restaurants. All of that put together means that Manchester City Centre is a place to live now feels very different or it's a very different offer today than what it was 20 years ago. And now people want to go and live there. Young professionals want to go and live there. And we see that in the, in the figures. We see that when you look around the skyline and all of the apartments that have gone up. If instead, say, we had to say, OK, well, let's, let's put more houses into, into Wakefield City Centre or, or Sunderland City Centre. Well, what we see in terms of people moving back to city centres, the thing that they want is access to good jobs, access to, to amenities as well, like bars and, and restaurants. The two things that say, a place like Wakefield or Sunderland doesn't offer currently is access to good, well-paid jobs and access to these amenities, and those things are linked. So there's no real reason why someone would say, hang on a minute, instead of getting a, you know, a three-bed semi-detached house in the suburbs of Wakefield with a front and back garden, actually what I'm going to do is go and get an apartment in the centre of Wakefield where it's smaller, I have to put up with the noise of a, of a city centre location, I have to put up with the, the downsides of lack of green space and perhaps more traffic and things like that. And then I've got to commute out of the city centre to the suburbs to get a job. It just doesn't stack up in the same way. So again, I think if we are to see a, a return to, to living in city centres, it would be down again to the strength of the city centre economy. So, okay, if it's not city centre housing, what are the policy levers that, that one could pull in Wakefield to actually sort of awaken Wakefield's high streets again? Well, I think the first one is to recognise the, the, the very unique role that a, a city centre economy plays within the wider economy. And the question firstly then has to be, a little bit like the, the housing is, 
why would a business come to the centre of Wakefield? Or why would a business come to the, to the centre of Sunderland? Or why are they not, as the, the case may be? I think by answering that question, you then start to see some of the policies that need to be put in place. So the first one, I think, is probably in any economic strategy is putting sort of, you know, the city centre at the, the heart of that and understanding, well, why businesses are coming here and that's where we're going to put our efforts. It's not in out-of-town parks. It's in about turning around the city centre economy. And then say, okay, well, what does commercial space look like? Have we got appropriate commercial space that businesses want to move into? Was it all sort of, you know, 1960s, 1970s stuff, which is falling to pieces and norm whatever sort of go into? What does public realm look like? You know, do the streets sort of function? Are they, are they clean? Are they tidy? Are they interesting places to, to walk around? How do we sort of tie that in with office redevelopment or, or the building of new offices? What does transport look like? You know, is the, is the centre well served by both public but particularly public transport? And what are, what are those transport links look like in terms of getting workers into the city centre? Then underpinning all of this, and this is my favourite thing that I always say, you know, skills is cent- the centre of this. Mm. If you haven't got a skilled workforce, you're not going to attract you know, skilled businesses to your city, your city full stop, never mind city centre or suburbs. And so that's the bit that needs to, needs to be sort of cracked in particular if we're to see a shift in these sorts of things. But like I say, if you get all of that right, and these things won't be done in the short term, and I do know that, say, I've picked on Sunderland and Wakefield a little bit here, I do know that they are trying to do things around this, but it'll take many years, I think, for it to turn around. But if it does, not only will we see a better functioning economy with more high-paid jobs, you will then see the high street performance better as well. Paul, thank you very much. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.